Here in Orlando, Florida, O-Town Compost is leading the composting revolution, recycling organic waste into a nutrient-rich resource. Join Charlie Pioli, founder of O-Town Compost, as we hear from the nation's leading voices behind the grassroots community composting movement. Welcome to the Community Composting Podcast. If you enjoy the Community Composting Podcast and want to support future episodes, please follow the link in the episode show notes to give a small monthly reoccurring donation, even if it's $5 to $10 a month. We'll continue to come out with killer content to keep the grassroots movement rolling. Hi, welcome to episode number 24. Four of the Community Composting Podcast. I he- I have here today with me Brenda Platt, who is Director of the Community Composting Initiative with the Institute of Local Self-Reliance, ILSR. They are, uh, you know, they're kind of at the, they're kind of bringing all the community composters together with their Google Listserv which is a great place for community composters to communicate, but they are also doing a podcast similar to this uh, where they're interviewing other community composters. And Brenda has a long history in community composting and um, advocating against incineration and just researching, uh, showing all the positive effects of composting Brenda, what led you into this kind of like waste industry and uh, environmental activism? Well, first, it's a pleasure to be here with you, Charlie. And um, wow, that's such a good question to start with, my origin story. I'll just say that I joined the Institute two weeks after I graduated college, and I've been there 35 years. It's my dream job. And when I first started at ILSR, I was fighting trash incinerators all across the country. They were just popping up everywhere. And one of the things I love about working for the Institute and probably why I've been here 35 years is we are focused on solutions. So it wasn't just fighting trash incinerators. It was, well, what are we going to do instead with our trash? So I did a series of reports back in the late 80s, early 90s. I think one was called beyond 25% materials recovery comes of age. And it documented about a dozen cities across the country that were already recycling 25%. At that time, recycling was like, oh, you can only do 15%. It's bottles and cans and newspapers. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, if you're only targeting 15% of your waste stream, that's all you're going to be able to recycle. So we were kind of trying to pop that myth by showing you could get beyond 25%. And then we did beyond 40%. And then we did cutting the waste stream in half. And more recently, it's all about planning for zero waste. But I'll just say that one of the things I learned through that research on the recycling record setting communities is that yard waste composting was the number one way that those communities were getting to higher recycling levels. So it became very clear that communities needed to do composting. And of course, yard waste compost has been around for a long time. But what that led into at some point is, I think it was 2004, I took a composting training course. And it wasn't until I took the training course on how to compost. It was a week-long course in Maryland. 
at that time it was called the Better Composting School. And people came not only from all over the country, but there were people from Chile and other countries that came to take that course. It was really a fabulous course. The USCC, the US Composting Council does something similar now. Um, but I was like, this is not rocket science, but you need to know some basic things for success. And I realized at that time that, you know, there's home composting, training and there's training for commercial scale, but there's very little oriented in between. And one of the obstacles to success of small scale was setting people up for success and teaching them how to do it right. Nothing will doom community composting more, especially in urban cities than having rat problems or odor problems or producing poor quality compost. So I became a big fan of, um, of composting and training. And at the same time, I think after, well, a few years later, I did the course in 2004. I did it again in 2010 and got my license in Maryland to operate commercial scale facility sites. But one of the things that that led to was us launching a, a community scale training program uh, that was still growing. It's about to go online, by the way, next week, I hope. And uh, But it also led to us doing this report. Uh, I think it was the first report on community scale composting. It was called Growing Local Fertility. It came out in 2014. Uh, and it was a guide to community composting. And after that guide came out, people were contacting me all around the country. When are you doing the next guide? Can we join that movement? You know, they were all community composters and this movement was just exploding. And so that was how we ended up moving towards convening this coalition you talked about. We'll link that in the show notes for sure. Um, and what was community composting like prior to 2010? Because it, uh, you know, a lot of the long-term community composters are still only a decade old. Your Bennett compost, your bootstrap. And, you know, they got the idea from somewhere else, but what was like the genesis story of community composting? It sounds like you might uh, have recollection. Well, I'll just say that composting in general has strong indigenous roots. So I just want to acknowledge the indigenous communities that have been engaged in composting for eons. Um, there's a wonderful story uh, about um, that's uh, Soul Fire Farm, um, the wonderful women and other folks there tell about Cleopatra being a proponent of worm composting on the Nile River. So I just to give one example, but when, when I was on my honeymoon in Belize on an island, Ambergris Key, they were saying, oh, if you go down to the southern end of the island, the mangroves are like seven feet tall because the Mayans have been composting, you know, for hundreds of years. And sure enough, we go down there and the mangroves are like just huge and tall and vibrant. So to answer your question, though, on community composting, I think there there's also a very strong history of farmers and um urban farms, rural farms, and community gardens doing composting for a long time. I think what's more new is integrating food scraps collection into, you know, what composting that's been happening at gardening levels and farms for many, many, many years. And the earlier community compost composters were like growing power in Milwaukee. Um, they are some of the oldest. I think the Lower East Side Ecology Center in New York City has been composting, certainly recycling since the 70s. 
um, Berkeley in California, surprised that I mentioned Berkeley, but Urban Ore, I think in the 80s was one of the first kind of community scale. They're not um, nonprofit, they're a for-profit enterprise, but they were composting back in the 80s. So mm -hmm. there's a long history of, of composting, I think, experience in this country and elsewhere. Okay, great. Yeah, and I noticed that uh, you and Neil Seldman, who are also, he's also uh, a senior at the ILSR, and um, you guys are very focused on the waste industry, which I love, but not only that, but, you know, equity in the waste industry, environment, you know, environmental equity, but also um, kind of like how the waste industry has become a, a monopoly in a, in a sense with all the mergers and acquisitions. And that just is the story even to today where the biggest waste haulers are just like, a, you can count them on one hand and they're traded on Wall Street. And um, it's really uh, 180 from the history of the waste industry, which was a very decentralized uh, system, which is what's great about community composting. It's very decentralized and local. But what uh, got ILSR down that pathway and you know, what uh, has your kind of, what direction do you think the waste industry is going and how does, well, the better question is how does community composting fit into uh, that, that waste industry that, um, you know, a lot of community composters don't consider themselves, you know, haulers, but it, really at the end of the day, we are kind of in the same, doing the same thing, so. Well, I'll just briefly say in terms of the institutes getting involved in waste and, and our program there is called Waste to Wealth. So it's kind of converting waste from a liability, which it is in a landfill or incinerator into an asset for communities. And Neil Seldman, who's one of the co-founders, um, we work, I think even when it, the organization was founded in 1974, waste was always part of one of the areas and key areas in which um, folks worked and it was energy, it was waste. Um, there, there was urban agriculture too at the time, but the issues that were chosen were issues that local government had some authority and power to change. So that's how, you know, waste is ultimately happens at the local level, city government level, so that's how I got involved, uh, Neil. And um, I think you're absolutely right, big waste. We do a, do a lot of work on fighting corporate concentration and monopoly power. In addition to waste, we're fighting Amazon's control of the retail sector. So folks, check out all of my great colleagues' work on broadband, energy, um, retail, independent business. And when it comes to waste, it's the same thing. I mean, we, you know, the status quo is local public works departments picking up trash and taking it to one site. That's what they want to do. And we really need a paradigm shift because what are public works departments really good at? They're good at, you know, collecting snow or paving streets, you know, but they don't have market development people. They don't know how to change behavior in terms of reducing consumption of materials and, you know, all the things we need to do to get on the zero waste path. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, our lens is, I think, very unique in the recycling industry is that we are all about keeping those resources local. 
And so, you know, even when it comes to recycling, you know, we, we were promoting locally based industries. We did a lot of work and have done a lot of work on building deconstruction materials and salvage. And that has been um, a great area to focus on because it's very hard to ship reusable, you know, bricks that can be salvaged, you know, from one coast to the other because they're so heavy. So deconstruction yeah. lends itself super well to staying within a local economy. Yeah, and, and I me... and I and I feel the same way about food scraps like banana peels. Mm. We shouldn't be shipping our banana peels from the East Coast to the West Coast. And even the finished product tends to be local. So there's and the beauty of I think composting to answer your question directly, I think Charlie is um that it's um it, it can be done locally, unlike paper, where we're not going to build a paper mill in every town, we can have local composting, it can take place in the backyard, the school garden, the school classroom with worm bins, and large scale and literally everything in between. So we should be promoting a decentralized and distributed infrastructure for composting. Yeah, and just so listeners have a little bit of background um, the construction and demolition waste stream makes up like a quarter of the municipal waste stream. So what Brenda is saying is deconstruction versus demolition, where you are able to salvage those materials, which is an awesome thing. And it's actually in my hometown of Portland, Oregon, it's an, a city ordinance. If a, if a house is more than a hundred years old. It's that old Douglas fir wood that is still good. And, you know, you're supposed to deconstruct those houses, not just lay them flat. So yeah, that's, that's interesting. So let me talk about zero waste. Do you think it's achievable in a modern, you know, urban area in the United States? And if so, how? Yeah, well, first of all, I'll just say that if you're not for zero waste, how much waste are you for? <laughs> yeah. And it's also um, a vision in that and a planning construct. So for instance, you've heard of communities that have goals for zero drugs in their community or a manufacturer may have a goal of zero defects in the products they produce. So if you're not planning for zero waste, how much waste are you planning for? And in fact, back to the origin story of fighting incinerators in this country, most towns that were planning you know, what happened is, let me just back up. What happened is there were states, state after state, it was like, let's take New Jersey, which is one of the first states to pass mandatory recycling statewide. Their goal was 25% recycling. And as a result, what was their disposal or incineration goal? It became 75%. So they had a 25% recycling goal and they wanted to be, quote, self-reliant in terms of, um, solid waste management. So they plan, they have 21 counties and they planned a trash incinerator, 21, one in each county. So that's because they artificially limited their recycling goal to 25%. So we have to have a goal of zero waste so we can plan for zero yeah. waste. It's as simple as that. And so people do roll their eyes up, oh, we'll never get to zero waste. And, you know, they, there's an international definition of zero waste by Zuiya, the Zero Waste International Alliance, I think it stands for. And it's, it actually is the definition is 90% or higher when you're measuring it. So it's not actually 0%. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, because I feel like a lot of 
you know, the consumer products, there needs to be more consume, uh, manufacturer responsibility and designing products that aren't multi-material, that there's an outlet for them after, you know, they've been consumed. But speaking on zero waste, you know, city of Orlando, where we're based, has a zero waste goal by 2040. And they're going to start planning for that in the next year, putting together the plan. What kind of waste infrastructure, what kind of recycling, food waste recycling infrastructure do you think a city needs to achieve that zero waste? Well, first, I think it's important to get the city to um, institutionalize that the definition of zero waste is not just zero waste from landfill, but also zero waste from trash incinerators. Yeah, we don't have that problem here in Orange County, but if you go to Hillsborough County uh, next door, that's where like the city of Tampa, they take it to incinerator. And unfortunately in the state of Florida, waste that is incinerated is included in the recycling rate of the state, which is bonkers. <laughs> yeah. That's a polite, polite way of putting it. We just got in Maryland a law this year that the ash from incinerators got to count towards the recycling goal uh, in Maryland. And we just got that stripped out. Finally, it was just oh, so, nice. so asinine. Yeah. So, but, you know, zero waste, I think there's several components. There's source reduction and prevention. So you want to you know, get rid of all this unnecessary waste. We produce so much unnecessary stuff in this country. Makes me weep. You know, one of my pet peeves is styrofoam and single-use products. I think single-use mm -hmm. has got to go. Yeah. And we have the technology and the systems to move towards more durables and um, washables and just like so many things. So we need to be following the money. There's always enough money for wastewater treatment or building a new landfill, but somehow there's not enough money to build the systems for washables and durables. So that's yeah. that's really got to change. We got to, if waste prevention and source reduction is the priority, then that should be where the priority is in the investment, in my opinion. And mm -hmm. then uh, repair and reuse. So, and when it comes to food scraps, you know, we want to prevent wasted food. Um, there's many companies that will go into restaurants and universities and other food service providers and do the waste audit and help not only prevent wasted food, but save money. You know, Lean Path is an example of one of those uh, companies that will do that. So there's so much uh, potential to reduce waste in the first place. And then, of course, rescuing food to feed people, edible food is mm -hmm is next and then we have a hierarchy a visual hierarchy uh it's i think it's called the food waste the hierarchy for reducing food waste in growing communities so our lens is keeping it local so mm -hmm. we have home composting so if you're promoting home composting you know you're a city doesn't have to pay to collect it and handle it and once you train somebody in our household and give them a bin they could be doing that you know, the bin yeah. could last 20 years or they could be doing it, you know, for the rest of the time that household is in that location. So that's really worth the investment. Not everybody will home compost, of course, maybe it's one in 10 households, but it's still tremendous and has to be considered part of the infrastructure that yeah. you need. If you can reduce 10% of the flow of materials that you're handling, that's a lot of savings right there. And that's also 
keeping that organic materials in people's backyards. We're so good at collecting yard waste and green waste and removing it. But why do we think the leaves fall? They fall and they replenish the earth underneath the trees. And now we're removing it all. No wonder our trees are stressed around the country, not just because of climate disruption, but you know, we're not yeah. keeping it local. But anyway, so and then I think decentralized um, community scale is really important. There may be a role for larger centralized facilities, but I think too often it's like the first thing we need. A community says, oh, we need a 50 acre site to build a large scale industrial, you know, site. And they overlook home composting. They overlook community scale. You know, I was going to say that like that is kind of the debate in my own head about Orange County landfill receives about 350,000 tons of organic waste per year. And, um, you know, what we do, we're we're recycling about we're composting about five uh, tons per week, which is actually a lot of work. And then there's a lot of people home composting the city of Orlando, Winter Park, they all uh, incentivize it, they give people free training and a free earth machine. But when it when push comes to shove, I, I think that to really target that huge volume of organic waste, I don't see any other way besides like a centralized facility. I mean, granted, I'm not, um, I'm not encouraging other counties in Central Florida to, you know, haul in their organic waste. I hope that they come up with a, a more localized solution. But I, I just, and I think that the best place to site a, a large centralized composting facility is on the face of a capped landfill, which is already kind of wasted space but what what are your thoughts well you know here i'm based in maryland and um there's one county howard county that has a local a small pretty small scale composting site on just that on their landfill and they're not taking material you know they're actually only handing residential material there so businesses even in the county don't go there so it's not large scale but just to your point about you know siting facilities on capped landfills there's probably plenty of examples and and of doing that especially when it's hard to find um, space i'm of the mind that there's a lot of opportunity to do it smaller scale first mm -hmm. and and i think there are many benefits of doing it on a small scale as well. I mean, and I should I should actually step back and say, you know, I've been thinking uh, about the need to change the language here because often when I say small scale composting, people think it gets only small scale when in fact it can scale up. You can right. have a network of farmers, you know, doing composting and you can invest in the farmers getting the right infrastructure, whether it's stormwater management or the pad that needs to be built, you know, which is one of the most expensive parts of building a compost facility. So if farmers could actually, if we could invest in farmers doing it, who need to add the compost to their soils for the right. organic matter and to help um, 
mitigate climate disruption, we need more carbon sinks. So compost is a great way to create more carbon sinks in the near term and for farmers to use it. But we need, you know, farmers are only going to want to do it if they get clean materials that are free from the contaminants and the plastics and the packaging. Um, and they need resources in order to build out some systems. But they, I think, is are also frequently overlooked. And then you have, I don't know if Orlando has a network of community gardens, but we've been working in certain cities. Um, we've been working, we're working in Detroit now, but we've been working in Baltimore and Nashville, DC, Philadelphia. And just to give an example in, in Baltimore, which does have a trash incinerator in a predominantly African-American community, highly pollute, polluting. That incinerator, some studies have shown, causes $53 million in uh, public health impacts every year. And so where is it? So talking about equity, which you brought up, huge equity issues when it comes to trash, where landfills and incinerators are based. And instead, you know, a lot of the communities there, they're not, they're not necessarily going to say, oh, we're going to collect, you know, put out our food scraps and collect. They need, we need to make the connections between healthy, you know, growing healthy soil. So those communities in which we've started community composting and community composting demonstration sites tend to be in communities that have food access issues or they have abandoned properties uh, buildings that have been knocked down that now have become spaces, you know, for drug dealing. And when they're converted into green spaces, community gardens that are also composting, they become spaces to bring community together, you know, to have music and grow food and harvest the food and, you know, the pandemic aside, of course, um, mm -hmm. but also outdoor spaces. And one of the um, projects that we've been working with over a number of years to support is the Baltimore Compost Collective and the amazing Marvin Hayes runs that and, and is engaging youth. So he's, he's hired youth, but I think even more importantly, by having a demonstration site um, at the Filbert Street Community Garden, you know, it's a site where youth groups can come in and be exposed to the wonder of composting firsthand and see how it grows food and you know, if students, more students can gain their community service learning hours that they need to graduate high school. I just think there's untapped potential to get youth involved and do it locally. And one of the things that's happened in um, New York City, the New York City local government supports the New York Compost Project, and they've been sponsoring a master composter program for many years. And there's been 2000 plus citizens of New York City that have come through that training program and they have gone on with those skills to start community composting operations. Some of them are a little bigger, some are smaller, but they're, they're armed with the know-how and even if they don't start an operation, these citizens are now like this army of citizens that are advocating for more citywide collection of food scraps and understand the importance. And then when things shut down during the pandemic, who, who was it that was still operating and still standing to collect food scraps? It was this network of community-based sites that was still accepting food scraps and converting into this black gold to go into local soils. And people wanted to have these outdoor spaces. As you start to take on more food scraps, you realize very quickly that you need a better composting system to process the material. 
This is why I highly recommend the aerated static pile micro bin designed and made easy by O2 Compost. In 60 days, I have finished compost without putting in the labor of turning the pile. The piles heat up to over 140 degrees, killing pathogens, weed seeds, and fly larvae, making the end product safe to use in the garden. With 32 plus years of experience in the compost industry, Peter Moon, owner of O2 Compost, is a leading expert in the field of ASP composting. I encourage you to set up a free half an hour consultation with Peter Moon by going to his website, www.o2compost.com. That's the letter O, the number two, compost.com. If you mention that you heard about O2 Compost on this podcast, you'll receive a 10% discount on the purchase of the Microbin Compost Training Program. So I think, you know, it is to your point right now, I think a small slice of the, the, the food, the flow of wasted organics that community scale operations are handling, but I think it's very scalable. And one of the issues is access to land and investment. We have to get money mm -hmm. towards these sites. And there are some opportunities now that are coming and the infrastructure bill included millions of dollars for recycling and organics recycling is part of that. So we need to fight like hell to get yeah. slices of those pie. And then the Build Back Better um, uh, program that hopefully will be passed soon also includes millions of dollars for healthy soils and, um, and uh, keeping materials out of landfill. So there's several opportunities that are coming soon that we need to, you know, yeah. again, follow the money. That's exciting. Um, and the composting act is in legislation right now, but we will link the composting masterclass. Uh, I'm assuming um, it's from the Department of Sanitation in New York City. Yeah. And who are some of those? Um, who are some of those people who are trained in that masterclass who went on? And what are the names of their community composting operations? Well, I think one of the best community composting operations I've ever had the pleasure of visiting is Red Hook Community Farm. It's in uh, oh. Brooklyn. And uh, it was, I think, one of the starters of the composting program was David Buckle. He's no longer with us, unfortunately, but um, he went through the master composter program. So that was episode number 10, where I interviewed Xander. And I've actually also had the pleasure of visiting uh, Red Hook when I was out there in Brooklyn for a wedding. But yeah, it was really, really uh, educational and really engaging for people. And it's total, totally fossil free way to process food scraps into compost. Um, yeah. I'll give you a few other examples, not necessarily from New York, but just from our own training program that we launched, the Neighborhood Soil Rebuilders Composter Training Program that we launched here in the DC metro area with EcoCity Farms. And um, Jeffrey Neal, who you may have crossed paths with, paths with, he runs Loop Closing. He was one of our first graduates. And now he started his own business and he is really a strong proponent of, of on-site composting and he started composting you know Howard University Community Garden he's got um, in a severe food 
insecure community, uh, Kelly Miller Middle School in Washington, D.C. He's a proponent of on-site composting? Yeah, small small scale on-site, like, you know, at cafes, like not even collecting it and taking it. But yeah, really community scale. Yeah, I have heard of that. And didn't they they, uh, manufacture some kind of technology to compost, like, up to a cubic yard in the back alley or something. I I feel like I've read about that. Yeah, he's. I don't know if he's he's if he has his own technology, but he's using a number of systems that either you can build like the three three bin systems, and he's using mm-hmm. the Rydan, which is an in vessel tumbler type system, um, and probably exploring other systems. Um, Beth Lamond is another graduate, and she's started um, a volunteer run in Greenbelt, Maryland, a zero waste circle. And so they've got, it's all volunteer run. I think they have 65 households. There's vermicomposting on the loading dock of a, of a restaurant, the New Deal Cafe, and they've got a couple of hot three-bin systems. And the volunteer families that run the hot composting are called the HOTS, and those who do the worm composting are called the wigglers, but, and they, mm-hmm. they're building their own, you know, do it yourself compost screeners and macerators. And so they're, they're just very cool what she's been able to start um, in her community. Uh, Phil Westcott um, is kind of more in a rural area in Maryland. He started um, Key City Compost, and he's yeah. collecting from business, you know, he's actually a for-profit entrepreneur, so he's collecting from businesses and households and starting a compost site. So this idea of when you um, do training, when you do train, this idea of when you do training, um, you can, you know, you're, you're, you're getting these people who just go out in the world and spread the gospel. It's just so critical. I mean, New York City, we've done it here in D.C. We're doing it in other cities, too. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, What like policies for composting organics recycling would you like to see in um, municipalities around the country or uh, any waste policies, do you think that the current ones in the states of Maryland, like an organics ban or, um, you know, what? yeah, I would love to know which policies you advocate for. Well, there's so many policies I advocate for that one of the things I advocate for is just pass some policies. There's so many, there's no excuse not to do anything. And just like the District of Columbia passed at home Composting Incentives Act, which required, you know, the Public Works Department to start offering home composting trainings and create a rebate of $75. You know, if you took the training, you can qualify for this rebate. So that's a very, you know, narrow policy, but like cities could do that, right? <laughs> and, and then you've got um, other cities that have passed policies more along the use of of using compost there i tend to call them minimum organic matter standards so there's cities that say oh if you're like going to knock down a building or do construction or disturb soil you need to put minimum organic matter back in that disturbed soil and some of these are in colorado some are in texas some are in washington state so um i think you know it, it can be um like in Washington state, 
and the kind of the Seattle King County area, if you're disturbing a, a landscape bed, you have to have by volume one third compost. So by passing these laws, you know, you're driving the market. But I think, again, we need money for the infrastructure and for farmers and community scale composters. So there's about eight states that have a per ton surcharge on disposal. Um, it's Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Iowa, Ohio, North Carolina, Indiana, Wisconsin, um, are some examples. And that surcharge is then going into a state grant program that then can be uh -huh. dispersed to help fund, you know, reduction, so it is, reuse. It, it's included in the tipping fees that people pay at the disposal sites. Right. Uh -huh. And what I would like to see is other states pass, and some of these these systems have been on the books since the 80s. You know, I don't think a new state has passed one recently. And I would like to see other states pass a surcharge and then the funding, you know, what, what's eligible for, for funding and the priority factors that go into that are farmers, small site community sites, you know, having to demonstrate community benefits and livable, you know, wages and jobs and, you know, serving underserved communities that are often left out, things like that. So, um, so I think that's going to be important. You mentioned the ban. There's a lot of states, particularly in New England, that have passed these statewide bans that require large food waste generators to do something with their food waste. A lot of these bans have to do with if there's capacity within a certain mile radius, then that's the trigger for you having to do something. That's and the problem with here in Florida. Like, uh, even if a ban was passed, there's not enough infrastructure, there's not enough haulers or food waste recycling processing sites. So, yeah, it would make a lot of sense to, like, New Jersey recently did it. You have to you know, you're required as a business who generates food waste only if you're within 20 miles of a processing site, I believe, or something. Yeah. But one of the things that's happening, which I think a trend that's very worrisome in the area, in the states that have passed some of these, this legislation, is that it's led to some of the large food waste generators like supermarkets co-mingling their packaged stuff with their clean like produce rotting materials. And then it is going to facilities that, oh, you don't need to separate it. Just mix it all together. We have a depackager. We will take it. So what's happening is um, the some of these laws have unintended consequences of promoting centralized facilities that can handle more contaminated stuff. And so then the community compost sites and the farmers that just didn't want any packaged stuff or compostable ware suddenly are losing market share. We're seeing this in Vermont. We're seeing it in Massachusetts. It's going out of state to um, a facility in Maine. And I, I'm worried that we're going to see it more in some of the other states because in addition to New Jersey, New York recently passed legislation and Maryland did as well. Who so, owns these depackaging plants? I don't, I don't really, I'm not quite sure. Um, I, I know, I think the one in Maine 
in Exeter, Maine, is run by AgriCycle or its sister company. Okay. Um, couldn't tell you who the ownership structure is there. But I think to answer your question, what local and state government need to do is to have more policies on encouraging segregated clean materials. Because at the end of the day, we want high quality compost that's free of microplastics. And if we end up with large scale or even small scale, whatever it is, composting that takes a lot of contaminated stuff we're going to give composting overall the industry a bad name and it's yeah. going to hurt composting across the board so we really need to be active on this particular piece about clean segregated materials and in the compost act which you referenced before um, we had which is a federal act that was introduced in july by um Congresswoman Brownlee from California and on the Senate side by Cory Booker, it calls for $2 billion over a decade to build composting infrastructure. The other important thing is that it, it, it would have composting be considered a, a conservation activity, which could open up a whole range of funding opportunities at the U.S. Department of Ag and other level and get it on the composting on the radar. It's kind of a healthy soils practice where it isn't across the board recognized as one, but creating this um, funding mechanism, we put in, you know, um, that clean materials, segregated materials, compostable materials. We tried to have language in that bill to help create infrastructure that is good infrastructure and not just kind of mixed waste and a lot of contamination, but we'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, very interesting. And you're right, um, you know, by source separating organics that you are getting the most like highest use, most beneficial end product. I mean, sure, you're going to probably get a little contamination, but it's not the same as those depackaging plants, which, you know, grind and slurry and uh, create something that's filled with microplastics. And I can't imagine any farmer or any uh, anyone really wanting that to grow food with. I could maybe see uh, maybe making compost for like roadside Department of Transportation uses, which I would love to see that policy personally is Florida Department of Transportation saying like, we have to buy a certain amount of compost uh, for filtration along roadsides, which would really spur the composting industry. And it would, yeah, it'd be awesome. So that's, that is so spot on. I think Texas was one of the first states that developed specs for compost and compost use. Um, for highways that I don't know if it was the Department of Transportation in Texas, but it created a, um, I think it was something like 300 to 400,000 cubic yard a year market for compost. Wow. And, um, and, uh, and it, as a result of that, there were a number of new businesses, talk about jobs and economic development that arose to meet that growing market now. So it wasn't just composters, it was companies that were producing the soil filtration 
you know, stormwater management sucks or blowing the compost blankets onto steep highway embankments that were creating jobs. So there was a lot of jobs that got created. And we other states have, Cal, I think Caltrans, which is the transportation agency and um, California has some good specs to look at. In Maryland, we did pass a bill requiring the state highway administration to develop specs. I think the way the law was written is they were required to develop specs that would name compost and compost-based products as a best management practicing practice for dealing with soil erosion and stormwater management. Because if it got into the specs as a BMP, a best management practice, mm -hmm. then vendors could use it. So it's not mm -hmm. fully implemented, but when it is, it's expected to create the largest market for compost. So yeah, I think you're spot on on that. Yeah. That'd be, yeah. So, um, you know, I think there is a lot of, a lot wrong with big waste haulers and um, kind of like how they look for efficiency improvements over environment, envir you know, doing what's best for the environment and for humans, for people. But um, as a community composter, you know, O-Town Compost, I kind of come from the waste industry and I think the reason, you know, my mindset was always in the waste industry. And that's why, you know, O-Town Compost is so successful and able to, you know, in its first couple of years divert, we've diverted, you know, three, uh, about 150 tons, which, you know, is not that much, but um, I'm wondering, is there any lessons from the waste industry that you can see, um, you know, from big waste haulers that you think are valid and could potentially cross uh, boundaries into like the community composting industry? Um, like, would you recommend um, anything from... Like, I guess that depends. Have you, have you seen anything that you really think is interesting that big waste haulers do? Well, I think big waste sees that if they don't get into this market of collecting food scraps, they're gonna lose market share. So you see waste management, you know, one of the biggest companies is has been involved in recycling and runs composting facilities they were the um biggest shareholder stock you know of the company of a big facility compost food waste facility in the mid-atlantic in wilmington delaware and it was handling like 500 tons per day of food waste from like a 400 mile radius and they they ran that facility into the ground. When it first was built, they didn't own any part of it, I think. And then they ended up with the largest share and they took, talk about contamination. They had not only plastics, but they had glass, which of course is the bane of any, you know, mm -hmm. you talk about not being able to market your product if it's full of glass, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but they ran it into the ground and they, they make more money off disposing material in their landfills. So it and they actually, up, funny enough, they did the same thing here in Apopka, Florida. They bought a, a composting facility, operated it two years, and then closed it. Yeah, down where you are, 
waste management. It's got some strong tentacles. I think <laughs> there was a local paper, the Sun Sentinel out of Fort Lauderdale, maybe if I remember this right, that ran a series of, on them like many years ago called the Titans of Trash. So yeah, yeah, but I, I think I know what you're getting at, though, is really there's not a lot um, to really cherish about big waste haulers when it comes to handling organics, because, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, they make their money on managing landfills, tipping fees, and just collecting trash. And, you know, that's why they they were pushing for single stream recycling is because it was just a whole lot easier, more efficient. And, um, you know, they they don't care about contamination rates going through the roof. So I I I totally agree. But do you see any do you see waste management one day? you know, seeing what's happening with the community composting movement and the, the organics recycling movement. And do you see them wanting to get back in the industry um, and, you know, try to capture those organics and, you know, maybe greenwash politicians into believing that, you know, their new method is the solution? Could, could be. I mean, I think... You know, big waste has put out a, a lot of small trash haulers out of business. I mean, there used to be in this country hundreds and hundreds, any city would have hundreds and hundreds of trash haulers. And we like to work with small haulers to get them into the business. I think that what cities perhaps could pay attention to more is in their contracting bids is not, for instance, to have a bid that goes out that says, you know, if you're going to collect food scraps or organics, you also need to provide recycling and trash service, mm. because then you're excluding the O-Town compost and the niche company. So, or in California, there's more common to have solid waste franchise districts where they carve up a city and they say, you know, into, you know, a however many solid waste districts and they give each district one to each hauler so i think when la did it you know they gave it was like you know multi-billion dollar worth collection and they gave it to like six companies you know precluding all these smaller companies or even community composters from the ability to collect but then what it's led to as a result is a lot of community composters that have to forge relationships with haulers. And I do think that's something that community composters should always be looking for who the collaborators and partners are. I think you mentioned Bennett Compost at the beginning of this discussion and they're in Philadelphia and um, Jennifer Masterlees, who's with Bennett Compost used to run a Philadelphia compost cooperative, and she was just collecting on uh, her bikes, her bike trailers. And Bennett was doing kind of, they're not a large scale company, but they certainly were a lot larger than she was and collecting food scraps. But Philadelphia being a really old town has really narrow streets. You know, if you even walk down some of the streets, the cars can't even park on the streets. They're, you know, half the wheels are on the sidewalks. And so they, joined forces 
uh, because she could do her bike collection routes in the narrow streets and then bring the food scraps to kind of a central location where Bennett's larger trucks could kind of pick up. So, you know, there's there's ample opportunities, I think, for community composters to partner with some other businesses. I'm just personally not a big fan of big waste because of the monopoly power and the and their goal really to make money off more trash being produced. And I think community composts tend to be more vision, mission driven, have different social enterprise values, which are important that big waste just, just simply does not have. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, thanks so much, Brenda. My last question is, um, you know, what are the resources through Institute of Local Self-Reliance um, you know, what would you say to fledging community composters or, you know, people who are listening, who are just interested in being part of the movement? Yeah, great question. Well, listen to uh, Charlie's podcast. You'll learn a lot from just, you know, being connected to all these community composters and these discussions are amazing. Um, we have a new community Composting 101 e-learning certificate course that we've been beta testing with a number of cities, which we will make available to anybody. And it's a self-paced online course. So as you could tell from some of the discussion we've had, I'm a big fan of, you know, having trained operators and raising the bar on people knowing what to do. And it's not rocket science, but it helps to know how to avoid rodents and odors and produce high quality compost. So take, there's lots of training courses available. So I'd say learn how to, to do it. And um, if you're a community composter, um, you can join our coalition and get connected. We've been doing a series of workshops. We've had, had national forums before the pandemic and we're hoping to be in Cleveland in 2022, the fall. It was uh, postponed or canceled due to the pandemic. So, and we, um, there's a lot of money coming down the pike. So we need to, like I said, um, make sure that we're at the table. I, I think I didn't come up with this, but if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. So, <laughs> so we need to be at the table fighting for our piece of the pie here. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think like advocacy, forging relationships with your local politicians, your state representatives. Um, you know, I have Florida Department of Environmental Protection on speed dial. I have, um, you know, the person with City of Orlando who works on their zero waste plan on speed dial. You know, people like that that are really shaping the future. Like if you, um, you know, you. you squeaky wheel gets the grease i guess you could say so absolutely contact your elected officials they want to hear from you yeah so be vocal they really do well thanks again it's been a real pleasure i hope to have neil on the podcast sometime soon oh he would love it all right keep up your great work charlie all right. thank you take care all right bye Please rate and review on whichever podcast platform you're listening to. If you feel like this is good content and you're learning a lot about composting.